All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. We are in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in our study of Matthew's Gospel. And in this recording, we're going to just pause for a moment and spend a little bit of time with what has come to be known as the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer shows up right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, some would even say it's the actual center of the sermon where Jesus is giving instructions on how to pray and how not to pray. It's actually part of Jesus' warning against doing uh, righteous deeds, righteous acts to be noticed by people and thus to appear spiritual and religious and righteous. Yet the Lord's Prayer stands out as its own teaching on how, how to pray. And it's been used in private prayer, corporate prayer, instructions on prayer all throughout church history. So in our previous recording, we stayed focused on the main point of the overall section in the Sermon on the Mount where the Lord's Prayer shows up. We, we focused on this idea of not doing your righteous acts to be noticed by people. But here, we're going to pause to offer some thoughts and reflections on the Lord's Prayer itself. And so as we walk down through this, uh, think of it as here is our rabbi, our teacher, teaching us how we ought to pray. And so let's pick up in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, where the Lord's Prayer begins. And Jesus says, pray then in this way. And he's going to give us these instructions for how we ought to pray. And the first place he begins is with the address. How does Jesus teach us to address God. Granted, God is infinite. God is almighty. God is mysterious, right? God is all powerful. God's all these things. But how does Jesus teach us to address God? He says, pray this way, our Father in heaven. So Jesus' teaching on prayer begins with this idea of addressing God as our Father. And that word Father was a term of both respect and intimacy in the Jewish culture of Jesus' day. It comes from two concrete realities. The first has to do with the nation of Israel. Israel is called God's son or God's child, and hence God is their father. The other reality is Jesus himself. Jesus, in his own unique way, being God's son. So there's some evidence that Jews called God father in Jesus' day. Uh, that that happened at least some of the time. But because of Jesus' own unique relationship with God as Father, calling God Father was distinctive of Jesus' prayer life and his relationship with God. God was his Father. And so Jesus would talk about God in that, uh, those terms all the time. Well, here, as Jesus is teaching us how to pray, we're invited into that. We're invited into that intimacy and that honor and that closeness with God so that Father can become distinctive of our relationship with God as well. And thus, we address him as our Father, the one in the heavens. That's who God is. This way of relating to God as Father is emphasized in the teaching of the apostles. For example, the apostle Paul says that by the Spirit, we call out to God as Abba, Father. Abba is the Jewish word, the, the kind of the standard Aramaic word for Father. Right? That's the way they address their dads, Abba. And Father is just the Greek word for it, right? Like whether you're a Greek, whether you're a Jew, we all get to call God Father. So prayer is relating to God as the perfect Father. 
who faithfully loves his people, who formed us, created us. And Jesus is teaching here in the Lord's Prayer, as we'll see as we go through it, Jesus' teaching makes it clear that he is a father who's involved in our life. He's involved in the details of our life. He knows our needs. And so we say to God, our Father. Now, let me just say real quickly as an aside, uh, oftentimes we get concerned with uh, this idea of, well, what if we didn't have a good experience of a father? What if we had a bad experience of a father? Now addressing God as father. Uh, I get that. My earliest childhood memory is the night my dad walked out on the family when I was three years old. So I get that. But let's just change the order. We don't understand God as father because of our earthly fathers. We understand God as a perfect father and everything he's like. And then that shines light on our earthly fathers and their shortcomings and their strengths and all of that. And so we begin uh, with our father who is in heaven. Then in what follows in the Lord's Prayer is a series of requests. The first uh, requests focus on God's honor and God's will. And then the last three requests focus on our needs and our situation. And so after addressing God as Father, Jesus teaches us to pray, Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Now, I don't know about you, but we don't use the word hallowed very often. So what are we asking? What are we, what are we requesting when we say to our Father, Hallowed be your name. Well, the basic idea of the word hallowed is sanctified, that is treated as holy. Like we're asking that God's name be honored and treated with the utmost respect, with the holiness that it deserves. There's an interesting passage in Ezekiel 36 that I think can help us understand the weight and the significance of this request. Uh, the book of Ezekiel is written uh, while the Jews are in captivity in Babylon. And they have dishonored God and they did so for centuries. So uh, the ultimate consequence of that was to be expelled from the land and taken into captivity. So that's where they're at. And Ezekiel 36, 22 through 23, uh, is God speaking about what he's going to do, how he's still going to act, and he's going to keep his promises for his people. And so he says, therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says. And so here's God's word to his people in captivity. It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name. This is what we're asking. God's name is holy. We want it to be treated holy. But for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went, where I sent. Like you've profaned, you've dishonored my name. To profane God's name is the opposite of hallowing God's name or treating it as holy. It goes on in verse 23 and says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I show myself holy among you in their sight. And so the request for God's name to be exalted and treated as holy, it really communicates a desire for God and his reputation to be treated with the utmost honor and the utmost holiness. And it also implicitly calls us not to do what Israel's being accused of, of in that passage in Ezekiel, like not to profane God's name. Oh God, we, your people, we want your name to be hallowed, treated as holy. So Father, help us to honor you and treat your name with the utmost respect that it deserves wherever we go. That's the, the force of this 
request. And so in the heart of someone who prays this prayer, there's a deep admiration for God. There is a deep submission to him. And there is a will that wants our Father in heaven to be exalted and admired and known for who he truly is. There is a deep desire for, for our Father to be treated with holy respect by all people. So that's the request. Holy be your name. Hallowed be your name. Now, the next two requests in verse 10 go together as a unit, as a set. And so after saying, hallowed be your name, Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we've noted in our study of Matthew already, God's kingdom refers to God's reign. That is his rule and reign over the world. Now, the reality is God is king. Uh, this world does belong to him. And yet, as the scripture regular says, and yet he's entrusted it to human beings, and human beings don't always do God's will. They don't submit to his reign. And so right now, in heaven, what God wants done is done. But on earth, it's a mixed bag. Uh, God's will is not always done on earth uh, as it is in heaven. So this request for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done is, God, we want your kingdom to come fully. We want earth to become the kind of place where what you want done is what gets done, where your will, your desires, your values, your wants are achieved readily and consistently and completely throughout the earth. That's what we're praying. So, Lord, we want your rule and your reign to come. And it flows from the vision that sees God uh, as a good and wise king. And when, when his kingdom comes, all will be right with the world. That our father, he's the king. And he's a good king. He's a wise king. And when his will is done, everything shall be put right. And this request also flows out of the knowledge that Jesus came into the world announcing God's reign, God's kingdom was breaking into the world through him and his ministry. So his kingdom is here. It's here in part. And we experience it now. And yet we want more of it. And so we pray for it to come in full. That's the force of this request. Your kingdom come. Your will be done right here in our world, as it already is being done in your realm, O oh God. So those first three requests focus on God, hallowing God's name, wanting his kingdom to come, wanting his will to be done. Um, that's the first three requests. The next three shift to our situation and our needs. And so verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Bread was just a staple of their diet. And so it came to represent like the basic necessities of life. That's the idea. Give us this day is give us what we need for our basic necessities of life. Now, there's been some debate as the best way to translate the word daily here, but probably it reflects the Exodus experience when God gave them manna and he gave them manna for the, for the day. That's what they got. And thus the idea is what we need for life today Grant that to us, O Lord, so we can make it to tomorrow. That's the idea of this request. And so we look to our Father in heaven to secure that for us. We trust his provision as our good, wise, faithful Father. Give us this day our daily bread. 
And then forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And here, what we're doing is we're asking God for mercy. We're asking God for grace on our sins. And sin is compared to a debt here. And what we're asking God to do is cancel our debt. Cancel our debt so we don't have to pay it because I could never pay that back. And this is a posture of humility, of acknowledging our shortcomings, of acknowledging our imperfection, of acknowledging our disobedience to our Father, and asking Him to cancel our debt. And we know that our Father is gracious. We know that if we confess our sins, He's faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us, as the Apostle John says in his, uh, his letter, right? 1 John 1, 9, that God's faithful to forgive us and cleanse us. We have that certainty, not because we're so good, but because he's so gracious and because Jesus has already dealt with our sins once and for all. And Jesus' words here indicate that experiencing such mercy from our Father ought to lead us to be merciful, that that's such a value of our Father. That's part of his will that he wants done is mercy and grace and compassion. And so uh, begging him for mercy, asking him for mercy, should lead us to be merciful. And in fact, in the whole of Jesus' teaching and throughout the New Testament, that there is a consistent interconnectedness between God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of others. Um, we ought not to expect to receive from God what we're not prepared to give to other people. That's the idea. So forgiving others is how we, we open our hand to receive God's forgiveness of us. Forgiveness doesn't mean we condone or minimize what, what was being done, right? We'll talk more about forgiveness, as I noted in our last recording, when we get to Matthew chapter 18, and Jesus gives a whole parable that really amplifies this idea. Um, it doesn't mean we minimize it. It doesn't mean we condone you know, what they did. It doesn't mean we pretend like all right, it, it was all right. Just think about what we're asking God to do when we're asking him to forgive us. We're not asking God to pretend like what we did was fine or no big deal or was really okay. We're not asking him to, to do that. What we're asking him to do is don't make me pay. Please don't make me pay because I couldn't ever pay that back. And so the same is true when we forgive others. We're not condoning them or minimizing what they did. Um, it's choosing to let them off the hook and not make them pay. Cancel their debt. It's costly. Right? That means we're going to absorb the cost, but we're going to let them off our hook and leave them on God's. And we'll trust God to sort all that out in his time and in his way. And so forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. And then uh, the next request is, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this request is an admission of our vulnerability and weakness. The word translated temptation is the basic word for testing. Sometimes it refers to a temptation test, which comes from our own desires within, but sometimes it refers to a trial test. That's just the basic idea, testing. And so what we're asking here is, God, don't, don't lead us into testing because we're not sure we can handle it. Uh, we're weak. We're vulnerable. We know this world is hard. So God, deliver us from testing. That's what we're asking. We don't want to fall prey to evil. And so the idea of God, the ideas of God leading us safely through the minefields of this world, the minefields of trial and the minefields of temptation. And we actually see Jesus practicing 
what he preaches here. We see that in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before his crucifixion. Jesus says, don't lead me into the hour of testing, right? Like, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I will trust you, Father. I will entrust myself to you. And so ultimately, this request is a prayer for faithfulness through the temptations and the trials that come our way in life. And that's the force of that that final phrase, deliver us from evil, or maybe the evil one. You could understand the word evil there either way, that the evil one is the one who's at work in this world trying to trip us up and trying to cause us to fall and to get us to be unfaithful. So deliver us from the evil one, or it could be deliver us from evil. Both are true and both are appropriate translations of that word. Now, that's the technical end of the Lord's Prayer. It ends at that point where Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But late manuscripts add the well-known ending, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And those words were probably added, likely, because as the prayer began to be used in corporate gatherings, corporate worship, there needed to be some sort of ending for such liturgical settings. And so, the, those words were added later as a way to appropriately end the Lord's Prayer. And this ending actually returns us back to the emphasis on God's glory and God's honor and God's kingdom and everything like that. And thus, they really form an appropriate conclusion to the prayer. Now, I don't know whether the tradition that you have been a part of regularly prays, prays this prayer in corporate worship— Mine have not. That's not the tradition I've been a part of. And sometimes I think that's unfortunate. I don't know if it's been uh, even part of maybe your personal prayer life. But notice that Jesus begins this by saying, pray in this way. And so, yes, it's a template that can shape a lot of our other praying, but it's appropriate as well to simply pray this prayer. And there are uh, there's some evidence that the in some circles in the early church, they prayed this three times a day, morning, noon, and night. And it would be appropriate for us to memorize this prayer and internal, internalize this prayer and begin genuinely from the heart, sincerely, to pray this prayer on a regular basis on its own, as well as to let it shape how we pray and how we think about prayer and our aims and ambitions in our praying. And so may you take the Lord's Prayer and may it shape your life of prayer as you walk with God, God who is your Father in heaven. All right, thanks for tuning in to this session of the Listener's Commentary. The Listener's Commentary only exists and is only made possible because people generously give to it. So thanks a ton to those of you who make this ministry possible. And if you have been challenged or encouraged or blessed in some way by the listener's commentary, uh, could I just ask if you would prayerfully consider joining the team of supporters? Uh, The Lord is doing a good work through it, and um, we depend on your gifts and your generosity for that. And so would you just prayerfully consider uh, supporting this ministry? And if you uh, decide that you're able to and want to, You could do that by swinging over to listenerscommentary.com. You can click the Give button. It'll redirect you to a page through World Family Mission, my page, where you can put in a dollar amount. You can click a little box that says Make This Monthly, and you can be uh, join the team of monthly supporters, or you can uh, support this ministry through signing up for the Study Hub. 
all recurring monthly donors get access to some of the bonus material that I'm slowly adding to the study hub, as well as the courses that are inside the hub and some other uh, recommended resources there as well. So thanks a ton for your support.